Hello, Frank. My dad kidnapped me once. A holiday is what this will be. You and me, son. On 12th of October, 2004, my dad popped out to buy a bottle of milk and never came back. Frank Burton, that's my name as well, I'm Frank Jr. Of course, your investigation. I know about your secret flat. I have an irrational fear of traffic wardens. Stop sticking your nose into matters that don't concern you. I was Frank Burton's wife and Frank Burton's mother. That was everything I am. Maybe it's like kosher or halal. Kosher or halal bacon, that's a new one. Everything I am. You and me, son. Everything I am. Everything I Am is the brand new novel by the author and podcaster Frank Burton. Available as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook, which is currently available for Name Your Price. Find all the details at frankburton.co.uk. Welcome to Ragbag. My name's Frank Burton. If you were listening last week, you'll know that I'm planning on writing a new book, and I have the first chapter right here to share with you. It's a bit rough round the edges. Also, we have an extraordinary guest for you this time. Get ready to immerse yourself in the music of Forest Beats. Yes, you are really going to like this week's guest. She's a brilliant songwriter and musician and her music has that enigmatic quality that is almost impossible to define, although we have a good go at it in our conversation. Here's one of the things she's going to be saying to me. You know, you want to listen to a song a couple of times and keep hearing new things and different perspectives and, you know, there are layers. I mean, there's layers really play in my music a lot, just sonically but also with the messages i think and that's just more interesting to me having a bit of a mystery shout out to elmo in honolulu i appreciate the free sample of your homemade fabric conditioner and i'm happy to feed back to the ragbag listeners on how that works for me haven't done it yet i lost it actually can you send me another one thanks for listening elmo you're a good man Thanks to all the listeners who've responded to recent episodes with ideas of their own or jokes of their own. I don't necessarily like them, but I appreciate your thoughts. Just to give you an idea of how bad most of them are, let me pick one entirely at random. Here we go. Jamie in Europe. Europe. Whereabouts, Jamie? Jamie says, I have an idea for a shop called Merch and Dice, which specialises in two separate things, Merch and Dice. Yeah, let me know how you get on with that, Jamie. Thanks for all the jokes you guys have been sending in. I'm not reading any of them out. I'm not doing jokes anymore. As you know, that includes you. You know who you are, and I know who you are. You haven't made much effort to disguise yourself. Get this right, listeners. I've received a series of emails, all supposedly from different people, all with the same subject header, which reads, This is not a joke. And within 
the body of each email. That's a funny expression, isn't it? The body of the email. Did I just make that up? In the body of each of the emails is a virtually identical message. Here's an example. You probably think this is a joke, but I really am called Matt Emulsion. Here's another one. You probably think this is a joke, but I really am called Anaphylaxis. As I say, I know who you are. Please stop sending me these messages. I know that I've read these particular ones out, but only to demonstrate how ridiculous they are. Here's a better one. Frank, I'm really pleased with the new format for the Ragbag podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much to the person that wrote that. That wasn't sent in by a listener. That was a note that I wrote to myself just to give myself a nice little compliment. That's nice, isn't it? Right, shout out to Ricky Bantz. Oh, for God's sake. Enough is enough. Benedict, I gave you the opportunity to present the show by yourself for an entire episode in the hope that you stop emailing me using all these stupid names. If anything, you've stepped it up a gear. Cut it out, mate. Oh, and Benedict, well, I've got your attention. There's something I need to talk to you about. Um, it's a delicate matter, really. I think I'll probably just give you a call about it. It's very sensitive, okay? Although, come to think of it, it's probably best if I do say this on the podcast, because then perhaps someone out there in the big wide world might be able to explain what's happened. So, listeners, this is awkward, as I say. You know, myself and Benedict have been planning this bank heist for some time now. Not a real bank heist, of course, a hypothetical bank heist. We've put a lot of work into the planning side of things and we've made extensive notes in a book. And now, well, I'm afraid to say the book has gone missing. I'm pretty sure the van was broken into. I'm pretty sure the person who took the book knew what they were looking for. They didn't take anything else, just that. And now I'm concerned, listeners. I'm very concerned that a highly detailed plot to steal millions of pounds has fallen into the wrong hands. The trouble is, it's a feasible plan. It's incredibly well researched. And if the people whose hands that notebook has fallen into wish to act upon it, they have a very strong chance of pulling off one of the most successful bank robberies this country has ever seen. Possibly the biggest. But if it all goes wrong, I'm afraid to say the authors of that plan, that's myself and the actor Benedict Cumberbatch, will be in some way implicated in the crime. So maybe it's useful for me to be saying this on the podcast as a kind of defence against the kind of thing that might happen as a result of that notebook going missing. I must say, this is all rather exciting in its own way. I wonder what's going to happen. We'll have to wait and see. I really should give Benedict a call. I think I owe him an apology of some kind. I'll do that while this next tune's playing, get out of the way. Then we'll talk some more after that. Well, after this next tune, I'll be reading you the first chapter of my work-in-progress novel, The Man Who Gets Things Wrong. Can't wait to share that with you. I'll call Benedict first.
Right, so here's the first chapter as promised. This is The Man Who Gets Things Wrong. A The Man Who Gets Things Wrong novel. The first in the The Man Who Gets Things Wrong series by Frank Burton. Chapter 1 It was an ordinary morning. The Man Who Gets Things Wrong was woken by his alarm clock at 6am, as he was every weekday. It took him a while to remember he was supposed to have turned the alarm off. He didn't need to get up this early today, but by the time he'd remembered that, he was fully awake. He couldn't help reflecting on the reasons for him not needing to get up so early that morning. Yesterday, the man who gets things wrong had lost his job as a primary school teacher. You remember that from last week, listeners, yeah? He kept getting the endings wrong for story time and all that. Now he's lost his job. I wonder what's happened here. We'll find out. Who'd have thought, he reflected, that I could lose my job over something so minor? I've got so many other things wrong over the years. It was true, he had. The man who gets things wrong, as his name suggested, (laughs) actually scratched that. This is all getting a bit Mr. Men. It's a serious novel, I have you know. I realise... The Mr. Men series was hugely successful, but, you know, the characters were a little bit one-dimensional, weren't they? Mr. Happy, cheerful fella, no hidden depths. That's all there is to it. There was no Mr. Subtle or Mr. Complex, Mr. Conflicted. So, I'll take that out. The trouble is, if I take out the words as his name suggested, I'm left with a sentence that reads... The man who gets things wrong had a tendency to get things wrong, which is rather self-evident, so I think I'll take the whole sentence out. This is good, isn't it, listeners? It's a real insight into the writing process. If any of you happen to have any romantic ideas about writing, or if you've ever entertained the idea of, maybe I'll write a novel one day, please do bear in mind that the majority of the process involves sitting there going, Do I need to say that? No? I'll delete it then. So, there you go. That's the writing process. Back to the story. It would have been quite impossible to calculate the average number of occasions per day on which the man who gets things wrong got something wrong. A lot of the things he got wrong were simply long-held assumptions that happened to be false. Take, for example, the expression... I don't drink, meaning I don't consume alcohol, for many years, several of which were spent as a professional educator. The man who gets things wrong had assumed that people who declined the offer of an alcoholic beverage on the grounds that they don't drink did not in fact consume liquid of any kind. He'd assumed there was some scientific explanation. Maybe they rehydrated purely through the moisture in the air. Or maybe they took water intravenously. The man who gets things wrong often wondered about this, but never went as far as to seek out an answer from one of these people. It was, after all, their business. Eventually his curiosity got the better of him when he saw a work colleague who'd previously used the expression, I don't drink, helping himself to a glass of orange juice in the staff room. His friend took this to be some kind of joke, But luckily, his jocular reply contained some factual information, which finally explained the confusion. 
So now the man who gets things wrong knows what I don't drink means. But even after having put two and two together on that one, he still doesn't understand the term teetotal. He first encountered it during childhood when he overheard his uncle saying he was going teetotal, meaning he wouldn't be drinking alcohol again. He understood that part. He also made the assumption, incorrectly again, that the word teetotal was a composite of the word tea, as in the hot drink, and total, which suggested that tea would now be the sum total of his uncle's liquid intake. No other drink apart from tea would pass his lips. Fancy a Pepsi? Sorry, I am teetotal. To this day, the man who gets things wrong believes that abstaining from all beverages other than tea is a weird quirk of the 12-step programme. He also believes that a fine tooth comb is a type of dental instrument. He'd often heard about searching the place with a fine tooth comb, etc., and wondered what a tooth comb was. Did people really comb their teeth? Then it occurred to him, there's such a thing as a hair brush, there are brushes for teeth, there are combs for hair, why not combs for teeth too? Now it all made sense. You see, listeners, what I like about this character is he's a bit relatable, isn't he? Just a little bit relatable. A lot of people will read that and they'll think, yeah, I often wondered what a fine tooth comb was until someone explained it was a comb with fine teeth. He's also a figure of sympathy. Poor guy. No one's explained to him what a fine tooth comb is. Maybe he doesn't have people in his life. Maybe he's really lonely. Poor the man who gets things wrong. On top of that, he's a figure of fun. <laughs> doesn't know what teetotal means. <laughs> the daft brush. He's all things to all people. That's interesting, actually. That's an idea to play around with. Even though he gets things wrong all the time, people like him. He's all things to all people. Intellectual people like him, even though technically he's a bit thick. They like him because he's very logical, and sometimes these little misunderstandings of his actually help him to see things more clearly than other people would. He has a kind of geek appeal too because he likes computers and wears glasses so at the very least he looks like he's intelligent macho men like him because he works out at the gym and he likes football you know soccer that kind of football honestly americans i'm seriously thinking of employing a translator for you guys so you can keep up he actually understands the offside rule in soccer which you'd expect to be out of character. But the thing about the offside rule is, people are always explaining it, aren't they? So, once you've got it, that's it. The trouble is, the man who gets things wrong, with his logical brain, keeps getting fixated on, well, why is it called offside when it's nothing to do with a ball going off the side of the pitch? Was it given a confusing name on purpose so that football fans could feel some kind of superiority over non-sports people who don't understand their secret code? Yeah, I do like all this um, all things to all people idea. I'm thinking that maybe he can be successful despite his many failings.
My original idea was that the man who gets things wrong starts off the book having lost his job, so he starts off down on his luck, and then my idea was things get worse and worse and worse, and it's kind of a, a tragicomic tale. Tragic because, oh, look at the poor guy. And comic because, oh, look at the poor guy. <laughs> but now I'm thinking, let's do the opposite of that. Things keep turning out well for him, despite him getting things wrong. He has positive attributes, he's charming, he's attractive. The kids like him, they see him as a father figure. This will come in handy in the fourth book, when for some reason he's given the task of single-handedly caring for a newborn baby. Imagine that, listeners, a newborn baby. He's the man who gets things wrong. He's going to mess that one up, isn't he? Fun and hijinks and all the rest of it. I can't wait for the fourth book. So where does that leave us with the rest of this chapter? Well, it's fine, actually. Losing his job is a good place to start because you can't have a success story where the central character begins from a position of success. Imagine how awful that would be. Rich dude gets even richer. Might as well read Richard Branson's autobiography. Right, let's crack on with the rest of his chapter, listeners. Where were we? Okay, right, teetotal, uh, fine tooth comb. All right, here we are, getting to the heart of the matter. As he lay, watching the sunrise between the crack in the curtains. Does that make sense? Surely the sunrise would be in the sky rather than between the curtains. Awkward wording. Revise later. That's the writing process, folks. As he lay, watching the sunrise between the crack in the curtains, the man who gets things wrong reflected on the reason he didn't need to get out of bed that morning, his reason for losing his job. In a way, this was inevitable. He'd always assumed that one of the many mistakes he made each day would eventually lead to some kind of sackable offence, but also... He never could have predicted what actually happened. Being called to his boss's office first thing in the morning, his boss was sat behind her desk with the dictionary open in front of her, and instead of saying anything, she pointed to a particular word and its definition. The man who gets things wrong read it, and he understood. The word was encourageable. The definition of the word was of a person or their behaviour, not able to be changed or reformed. In a negative way, his boss added, for emphasis, this is not a positive word, this is not complimentary. The man who gets things wrong's mind flashed back to the previous evening, parents' evening. He checked his list and the next set of parents to step up to his desk were Mr and Mrs Lancaster. Mr Lancaster was a parent governor. Mrs Lancaster was heavily involved in raising much-needed funds for the school. The man who gets things wrong didn't want to give these particular parents special treatment. He appreciated the fact that they were influential people, but that wasn't the reason he was ready to pour praise upon their son. He was passionate about their son's learning, just as he was any other pupil, and had a whole speech prepared about this particular child because he was such a responsive learner. The man who gets things wrong greeted the Lancasters with a warm smile. 
Mr Lancaster shook him firmly by the hand because he was that sort of person. No one was safe from one of this particular parent governor's needlessly bone-crushing assertions of authority. Is this pre- or post-pandemic, I wonder? Dunno, there'll probably be a vaccine by the time this book's finished. Then it's feasible you can have a character who shakes hands with everyone. But then you'll still have to specify pre- or post-pandemic. We're going to have to do that with everything, aren't we? That's annoying. So how's Thomas getting on, said Mrs Lancaster. I have one word for you, said the man who gets things wrong. Incorrigible. He misinterpreted the widening of the Lancaster's eyes as a look of pleasant surprise. I really mean it, he continued. That one word really does sum this child up. How dare you, one of them replied quietly. Oh, said the man who gets things wrong, before incorrectly stating, I know what you're thinking. I get this a lot, with parents saying, Oh, he's a different child at home. Let me assure you, because I can see that you're worried. Your child is completely incorrigible. He was unable to continue because both parents had risen to their feet and stormed, humiliated, out of the building. The man who gets things wrong looked up from a dictionary into his boss's unwavering stare. Is it possible to look up into an unwavering stare? You can meet a person's line of sight, sure. I'm not sure you can look up into a person's line of sight. Awkward wording. Revise later. I wondered what all that was about, said the man who gets things wrong. Obviously what I meant to say was he is encourage like he likes a bit of encouragement. You can encourage him and he responds well to encouragement. That's what I thought that word meant. I'm sure I'm not the only person who's ever made that mistake. I'm sure we can sort it all out. We could, said his boss, if the whole incorrigible slash encourageable thing were the only issue. It's not. Mr Lancaster was so angry after your conversation, he went out into the car park, spoke to as many parents as he could find looking for dirt. You could say that that was a petty and vindictive thing to do, and it clearly wasn't going to get him anywhere. However, it turns out he was able to dig up some dirt quite easily, an avalanche of dirt. He emailed his report to me last night. It's several pages long. That's ridiculous, said the man who gets things wrong. What's he accusing me of? Many things, she said, none of which would be considered serious on their own, but altogether this is a catalogue of errors. Like what? Item number one, she said. A child asks you why the sky is blue. You said, because of the Conservative government. Is it not? said the man who gets things wrong. Of course it isn't. Where did you get that from? Oh, well, there was a man who came to the door once campaigning. He kind of went off on one about how this country's become entrenched within conservatism. At one point he said, even the sky's blue. It seemed to make sense at the time, like it was a form of subliminal advertising or something. 
Well, it's not. Why's the sky blue then? I don't know, she said. I'd have to look it up in a different reference book. But there isn't time for that. Item number two. A child asked, Why does Santa Claus have that big beard? You said, There is no Santa Claus. That is factually correct, said the man who gets things wrong. You weren't supposed to say it, she said. It seems to me that all of the items on this list could have been avoided with just a little bit of forethought. It seems to me you just say the first thing that comes into your head whenever anyone asks you a question. Does that sound fair? No. There you go again. I'm just saying we can fix this problem of yours, this whole getting things wrong business. All you need to do is take some time to really think about what you're saying. If you're not entirely sure of the answer to a question, look it up. If a child asks you something about Santa Claus, ask yourself the question, is my response to this question going to shatter anyone's hopes and dreams? There's a big long list of other examples. I don't think it would be productive to analyse them all in detail. It's the principle of the matter. The biggest problem we have is the last item in this report. You might not even remember saying this, but apparently several parents reported this incident to Mr Lancaster last night. A child asked you, Why does 1 plus 1 have to equal 2? Why can't it add up to 7? That's my favourite number. You said, Well, these numbers are all made up anyway. There's no reason why you can't devise your own numerical system. I thought that was quite an inspirational thing to say, said the man who gets things wrong. You're supposed to be laying the foundations for the child's understanding of the basic principles of mathematics, she said. Oh, right, yes, I see what you mean. As I say, this is fixable too, but considering all this, I'm going to have to place you on immediate suspension. Oh, suspension? For how long? That's to be discussed. We'll have to deal with the practicalities first, cover for your class, an official apology of some kind. The Lancasters have made a formal complaint. Leave all this with me and please, for now, just go home. So that's what he did. You see, it would have been better if he'd been outright sacked. Not for him, but for the sake of starting the story off with him in a bad situation. I did say he'd been sacked earlier, didn't I? I'll have to go back and change that. The thing is, realistically, for him to be outright sacked, he'd have to do something more than get a few facts wrong. Like, if he'd have got annoyed with that guy with the needlessly firm handshake and punched him in the face or something, that's a sackable offence. I did consider that, actually, because I think a lot of readers would still be on the man who gets things wrong side. You know... Everyone knows someone with a needlessly firm handshake and unless you're one of those people yourself, you're probably going to find that annoying. But ultimately, I don't want the man who gets things wrong to be a violent character. Maybe in self-defence, if he's severely provoked, not randomly at a parent's evening. Talking of the man with the firm handshake, I'll let you in on a little secret, listeners. As I say, this is a proper insight into a writer's world, I'm going to give away one of the big secrets 
of storytelling here, right? Apologies to anyone in the writing community who were hoping I was going to keep a lid on the tricks of a trade. No such luck, my friends. The cat is coming out of the bag. I'm spilling the beans. And now I'm annoying you by throwing a few gratuitous cliches into the mix. Ha! Here's a secret. If you want to create a character who's a very small part of a story, but it's necessary for the plot that this person is an unlikable character, all you have to do is introduce them. There you go. Here's a guy. Here's a guy. There he is. You don't have to describe him much. All you need to do is give him an annoying characteristic. Just one. That's all you need. My guy happens to shake hands too hard. Could have been something else. Would have had the same effect. Maybe he laughs at his own jokes or picks his nose. That's all you need to do. Then the reader gets a certain impression of him based on that one characteristic. If you wanted to, you could apply all sorts of sociological research. Maybe you'll discover that men who shake hands too hard are more likely to have anger management issues, more likely to have irrational prejudices, less likely to read books, which is handy because that would mean that very few of your actual readers will fall into the category of bad handshakers. They'll all hate him, just based on that one thing that he does. You don't even need to give him a name. I gave my guy a name, he's called Mr Lancaster. You know why he's called that? No reason. I just thought of it. It popped into my head. There's another little trade secret. Can't think of a name for your character? Just pick the first name that comes into your head. What shall I call him? Oh, John. Boom. Job done. Pluck that right out of the air. John. We're cooking on gas here, folks. We really are. By the way, that trade secret about having that one particular character trait, that's not something that I invented. It's been going on for years. Centuries, even. Only difference is, in the olden days, instead of it being a character trait, they just picked on the person's physical appearance. Seriously, open any old book. Check out the character descriptions. The guy's not to be trusted. How do we know that? He's got a big nose. This woman's not to be trusted. She's got a double chin. Or they'll give him a disability. This guy is not to be trusted. He's got a stutter. I'm serious. Check out any novel that was written before about 1980. Full of big-nosed con men and angry plus-sized schoolmistresses. At some point, around 1985-1986, someone, somewhere, must have said something like, Can we stop doing this, please? And that was the end of that. Little lesson in literary history there. Right, so that's chapter one done. Maybe I'll have chapter two ready for you next week. Got to fill this section of the episode somehow. If not, I'll just have to invite Uncle Claude on or something just to mix things up a bit. But I'll treat next week as my deadline for chapter two. Make sure you listen next week. It's good to have a deadline. This is going very well, listeners. The man who gets things wrong. Maybe it is. I've been wrong in the past. I hope it's going well. It is going well. Yeah.
Now it's time for my interview with Forrest Bees. We had a great conversation covering subjects such as her musical history. She's formerly of the band The Stratford Four, so we get into that. We talked about influences, both musical and cultural, and we also get into the subject of the Forest Bees videos. I don't usually rave about music videos at all. I'm much more of an audio guy, you know what I mean? But to me, there's something really attention-grabbing about the Forest Bees videos. Let's play a song before we get into it. This one's called Alexa. It also has a great video. I started playing in bands when I was in university. I actually did a year at the University of Manchester. It was that Manchester, England? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. That's where I am. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I assumed you were London for some reason. <laughs> no, I've, I lived in the South for a long time, so I haven't really got a Manchester accent. But that, that is where I am again. That, that's kind of where I'm from originally. And that's where ah. I... How did you like Manchester? 
I loved it. I picked my, my university. It was one of those um, year abroads that you could do. And my university and my professors really wanted me to go to Oxford, but all my favorite bands were from Manchester. So I, yeah, convinced them to let me go there instead. And I had an amazing time. Just made some really good friends, saw lots of music, uh, and just got to live out my Smiths and Dews fantasies of wandering around the city and finding all of those places that he talked about in the songs. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I loved it. Yeah, I did a year in Manchester. I came back to California. And uh, when I graduated, I moved to San Francisco and decided to start a band. And I saw a flyer that someone put up. Um, and, you know, that's how people used to get introduced to each other musically back in those days. This was the when late 90s, basically. And I started a, a band with some friends. We called ourselves the Stratford Four. We were um, four people here in San Francisco. It was kind of a space rock shoegazer type band. And we uh, quickly gained a following in San Francisco. We signed to an indie label in New York called Jet Set, put out two records. They did pretty well, did lots of tours and um, got signed to Elektra Records, actually. Um, we were signed by Rick Ocasek from The Cars, if you remember that band. Oh, yeah, um, I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was doing A&R for Elektra, and he, um, he emailed us, or rather his assistant emailed us when we were on tour, um, and then he just showed up at one of our gigs, which was amazing and um, kind of weird, actually, because it was our New York show, at a place called the Bowery Ballroom and people from our current record label were there and they're like, why is Rick Ocasek here and what's going on? And so I had a private meeting with him backstage and he said he wanted to sign us. And, you know, it was a little complicated because we were still under contract to our former label, Jet Set. But um, they assured me that this was going to be a win-win. Um, we should go, we should sign with them. Uh, they would get the benefit of the back catalog doing well. So we started that process, but then they sued us and <laughs> things got sidetracked and it just turned into just turned into a shit show with lots of lawyers and negotiations. And in the end, we didn't we we were freed of our contract, but it really drained us. But we signed to Electra, we quit our jobs, we went to New York. Uh, Rick wanted to produce our record, so that was a lot of fun. And we made this incredible record. We got as far as having a listening party for all of the Electra staff. We started to meet the people who would work with us. And then AOL Time Warner, which owned Warner Music, um, actually sold Electra to a German investor and they shut down the label. So I don't know if you remember that, but most of the bands uh, were dropped and we were dropped as well. So that was kind of the, well, the almost end of the Stratford Four. There was just, it was, it, it started to not become fun because it became so much about all these business problems. But our singer was having a hard time dealing with all of it. And he actually told us that he was going to quit. Now we had a manager, we had lawyers, we had all these people who were looking for another deal for us at the time. 
and it looked promising. And I just thought we made this amazing record and Electra actually gave it back to us, they, which is rare. Um, so we wanted to find another label so that we could put it out. And I just decided to keep the whole singer leaving the band thing secret. And I didn't tell our manager and I didn't tell our booking agent or, or anyone. And I just thought if something good happens, he'll come back. And so we were shopping the record around. Um, and then at, at some point we were offered a tour um, with Supergrass. And um, I remember our manager saying, you know, you should take this tour. We'll, we'll figure something out with the record, but just keep the momentum go, going, go on tour. And, um, you know, we loved Supergrass, but our singer didn't want to do it because, you know, he had left the band. <laughs> I was like, can you please just come back and do this one tour with us? And so I had to tell them, no, we were going to turn down the Supergrass tour. And then everyone was like, what, what? what's going on? And so I had to come clean. And um, then everyone was like, okay, well, you're done because the singer leaving isn't the same thing as the bass player leaving. Um, without the singer, there is no band. So it all just kind of imploded. And that was the end of that band. I took some time off from music. I was kind of burnt out on the whole thing. I went to graduate school, actually in London. Uh, I got a master's degree from uh, SOAS in London. I had some kids, just decided to focus on my career. And it was about 10 years, which, you know, were fine, but I was just super busy being a mom and, and working. But when my youngest was about four, things started to get a little bit easier. And I just felt it all come flooding back, this, this desire to play music again. And it hit me really, really strongly. I mean, in, in that interim 10 years, I barely even listened to music. I just, I needed to just get it out of my system, I guess, and focus on other things. But um, when it came back, I just, I didn't know what to do. And so the thing that made the most logical sense to me was to, reform the Stratford Four, my old band. And so we were actually taking a family um, trip up to, there's an area here in California called Lake Tahoe, and it's a, it's a big skiing resort area. And Chris, the singer from Stratford Four, had moved quite near to Tahoe. So we were coming back from the ski weekend, and um, I decided to 
text Chris, who I hadn't spoke to for almost 10 years then. And, you know, we didn't leave it very well because I was pretty angry at him for leaving the band. But we met up in a cafe and it was really great to see him. And uh, we had a really good time. And then I started talking about maybe we should release that record. So we, we decided, because the record that we made for Electra never came out, we, we thought, well, this is a shame. We should just release it. And even if we can't find a label, you know, technology had changed in the interim, in the 10 years um, that had passed. And so I thought, well, we could just put it out on Bandcamp or something like that. And so we decided to reform the band. Um, and then we thought, well, if we're gonna put the record out, we should play a record release show. And so we got the other two, um, Jake and Andrea, who are a married couple and they were living south of San Francisco. And um, we played some shows in San Francisco and LA. It was a lot of fun. We had lots of people come out. It, it was great. And then we started to think about writing some new material. And um, that's where things kind of fell apart again. <laughs> and it, it didn't really work out. I think some of the, the issues that drove the band apart in the first place kind of resurfaced. But at the same time, I also just thought, this isn't exactly what I want to be doing right now. It felt very much like we picked up exactly where we had left off. And you know, while I love that music, the very kind of guitar-driven, heavy shoegaze music, it wasn't everything I wanted to do. And I had some other ideas that I wanted to explore. And so I decided to start my own thing. And that's where Forest Bees came in. Did the record ever come out in the end then? <laughs> we, put it, we put it on Bandcamp. Um, oh, you did? Okay. So it's, it's a real thing that exists. And it is real, yeah. Yeah, it's All called right. Keep Your no, Crazy Head on Straight. I'll have to check that out, yeah. Cool, yeah. Yeah, it's up there. Stratford Four was a band, a kind of a traditional, you know, two guitar bass drums band. And with Forest Bees, I play everything myself. And so I think the biggest difference is, well, I don't play drums. And so I went for electronic kind of beats as, um, you know, the, the drums in this band and kind of taught myself how to program. Um, and then the rest of the instruments I, I could play, but there's um, definitely a bass. I was the bass player in Stratford 4, and it's my favorite instrument. I know people think it's kind of uh, an afterthought instrument, but I actually, I really, really love the bass. Um, so there's a lot of bass and keyboard, and then samples, um, which we never did in Stratford 4. I mean, this is where I wanted to really explore and kind of do, do something that was a little less traditional indie rock. And so I, I get to kind of play out all those ideas with forest bees.
Yeah, well, so I guess kind of leads me on to the next question that I had for you, which was about uh, complexity, the complexity of the music and also the complexity of the, uh, the lyrics. And it feels like the lyrics are expressing kind of complex emotions. And it, it, there's, there's just a lot going on, if you see what I mean. And I'm just wondering if that is something that comes naturally to you or is that something that you have to kind of work hard at in order to achieve? <laughs> no, no, no. It comes very naturally because I, you know, I, I think this is why it's, it's really important to have diversity in, in music because, I mean, that complexity is, is natural. And, it, and I think as you get older, I should say that that kind of dreadful O word, older, but, you know, I'm not in my 20s anymore. I definitely write different songs now than I did then. And I think as you get you're an adult and you live life and you're a parent and you have experiences, you realize that things are complex and nothing's really as straightforward as you might think it should be or, or is when you're younger. And so I, I think that complexity just makes, it, it's about the richness of life. You know, emotions are complex. Nothing's ever just one way. And I do try to get that across in my music. I'm glad it comes through. Yeah, well, I, I think that's what's uh, what what's really good about it is on the first listen, you might not understand what it means. So you have to go back and kind of listen to it again and kind of, wow, oh, okay. That's my favorite kind of music. I mean, it might not be as immediately accessible as some things are, but, you know, you want to listen to a song a couple of times and keep hearing new things and different perspectives. And, you know, there are layers. I mean, there's layers really play in my music a lot, just sonically but also with the messages i think and I, that's just more interesting to me having a bit of a mystery yes yeah yeah absolutely um i, th I think my um my uh, favorite song from your album is uh, hollow bones mm -hmm. and um that's the one that i keep sort of going back to and kind of replaying that one and i think it's got that quality to it in that it's um i couldn't exactly tell you what the song is about but it's kind of it more cap captures kind of a feeling <laughs> yeah well I, that, I was definitely going for a feeling or a particular mood with this record and you know selected the songs kind of based on that to reinforce that I am old-fashioned in, in that way in that I kind of think about I think in terms of the album as a whole, and I really wanted to evoke a particular feeling. It's, you know, a, a little dark, but, you know, at getting back to that point about the layers and the complexity, I hope that there was just kind of a, a silver lining kind of woven throughout the songs as well. And Hollow Bones, if you're interested in, in what that song was about, is actually a postpartum depression song. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I could have read that into it, but I um I didn't want to suggest that that what was what it was about because if I suggested <laughs> and that wasn't what it was about, then I would look foolish. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about looking foolish. But... <laughs> yes, yes, I know what you mean. But um, yes, no, that that uh, that obviously um yeah makes complete sense within the context of the of the song you know, it, is this kind of a therapeutic process for you? Because I mean, I, I presume you're writing from like your own personal experience of that. Yeah, 
you know, I, I would call it, I would say I had a touch of the baby blues, like not full blown maternal depression. And, you know, I, I know that it's a quite serious subject, so I don't want to take it lightly, but I do also think it's quite common and it's not something that you hear discussed um, very much and it's a little bit taboo. So, you know, I, I just wanted to write about it because if there's anyone else out there that, you know, could relate or maybe feels alone or is going through something, I think it always helps to know that there are other people who have felt the same way. And I think that's important. And, you know, back to one of my points that I made a little earlier is um, I just, I, I, what I'm really trying to do with this record is just kind of try to push narratives a little bit. I think that there is, you know, a particular type of narrative in indie rock or rock music that is, you know, about a certain type of story and a certain type of person who's allowed to tell those stories. But again, I think it's really important and really interesting as a listener to hear about different experiences and different stories. And, you know, I think you want to hear as many voices as possible. Which uh, leads me to asking you about the influence of Indian music. Well, I mean, I wrote this question and then I started <laughs> questioning myself within the question. Am I right about this or am I just reading something? <laughs> am, am I just reading this in? You know, it certainly sounds to me like uh, Indian music is a strong influence on your work in terms of, you know, the vocal delivery and the instrumentation that you're using and things like that. So am I correct in that assumption? <laughs> For, for, that's the first bit. Am I correct to that assumption? Yeah. Frank, you need to give yourself a little more credit than you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. no, you, you're right. But, you know, it's actually, it's great that you picked up on that because it was not something that was really conscious for this record. I was born in the States. My parents um, were immigrants from India. And that, that music, kind of Bollywood music, really is, was my first language, you know, musical language. My mother wanted to be a classical Indian singer. She had has a beautiful voice and she was always singing around the house and we just listened to records. Um, that's what I grew up listening to. And I didn't even, you know, really think about it until I started school and I realized that all the other kids were listening to these bands like the Beatles and the Stones. And I just didn't have that vocabulary because that's not something that we listened to. I mean, I, I was also really obsessed with top 40 pop radio. So I caught up pretty quickly, but I think that that first kind of musical language coming from the Indian music, it's kind of seeped in as, as you would expect. And, you know, for this 
next record, the, the stuff that I'm working on right now, I'm a little bit more conscious of it because I've been going back and listening to that same music kind of late 70s, 80s Bollywood. And there's certain things that I really love about it. I mean, it's some of it is a little melodramatic, but there are just so many beautiful melodies. And, you know, I've been analyzing the song structures a little bit more. I don't know what it's going to turn out like um, this next record that I'm working on. I, I'm kind of in this experimental phase where we'll see where it goes because I don't want anything that's going to be too, you know, too, too belabored. It, it should be natural. But I think for this, the record that we're talking about, Forest Bees, um, it was not conscious, but sort of subconsciously it seeped into the music. Oh, right. So I, it wasn't even something that you were necessarily thinking about when you were, uh, as an influence, when you were putting the music together. No, no, not at all. I mean, what I was thinking about was um, I spent some time in London living there in the 90s. And so, uh, but for some reason, my my thought process as I was thinking about what I wanted this record to sound like. I was actually thinking about London, but kind of what I imagined London to be like in the 80s. I used to like hang out at the rough trade store and um, spend a lot of time there, kind of always worried that someone was gonna kick me out for not being cool enough to be there. But <laughs> I, don't, I was just really influenced by kind of that West and then sort of East like different parts of London, the architecture, the, the people that I would see, um, just kind of like that area around Ladbroke Grove or Portobello Road, and then down east more towards like Dalston and Hackney, where I would hang out when I was living there a lot. And I don't know, there was just this feeling that being there just, it was very evocative to me of something. And I, I think that's what I was searching for with this record. I have no idea if I hit the mark or not, but that was more of the conscious thought process. In terms of your like conscious uh, influences then, <laughs> um, who, are you, who would you say you were consciously influenced by? Well, when I was writing that record, I was listening to a lot of the slits I was listening to, now it's kind of crazy when, when you ask this question because you're, you're going to get things that you probably don't hear in the music, but there is an older American, kind of a, a 90s indie band called His Name is Alive. They made kind of weird sort of bedroom recordings, this guy from Michigan. Um, I was listening to him a lot. I was listening to Grouper which is, I don't know if you're familiar with them, it's this woman, Liz Harris, and she just writes really kind of soundscapes, I guess, like really kind of abstract, beautiful music, kind of dreamy, weird, kind of outsider music. So I was listening to a lot of stuff like that. And then there, there's some kind of portisette type influences in there too, I guess. Yeah. That sounds uh, interesting. And in, in particular with the slits, actually, because that, that there's, there's a certain mood that they managed to capture somehow. And mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's aged very well, um, their stuff, I think. It's kind of, yeah. if you listen to it now, it sounds really contemporary. Yeah, it um, sounds fresh still. I can see the link there. I remember being in the studio and, and really 
wanting to get kind of some of that Ari up sort of feel in, in some of my vocal takes and just feeling like I couldn't do it. Like, obviously I'm not her, she, <laughs> but um, it was something I was aiming for. You know, I probably fell short of the mark, but um, the spirit was guiding me. <laughs> that's very good. No, it's, uh, that, sounds, uh, that sounds nice, like a nice experience you had there. <laughs> a lot of what influenced the record though, for me and influences my songwriting in general are, are kind of books and ideas too, you know, in, as well as other musicians and, and music. So there were, I, I have in my day job, I run an innovation lab. So I think about technology a lot. And so lyrically, there's a lot in this record about technology and the way it mediates spaces between people, this kind of belonging and longing and isolation and connection and how technology is kind of interwoven and, and you know, what the implications are of different forms of media and technology that we're, that have kind of invaded our daily lives and, you know, various books that, I don't know, I just, I glom on to ideas and things kind of fester in my mind. And that's where a lot of the songs come from as well. Yeah. Okay. What is an innovation lab? <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> Pardon my ignorance on this matter. Uh, so I, I actually work for, I run a charity, which is um, called the early learning lab. And it is, yeah, we call ourselves an innovation lab for the early childhood field. So what we're, we do is we work to build a better world for families of children ages birth to five. Some of that is about new technology. Some of that is about tools and techniques from the social innovation space, like behavioral science and human-centered design, how that can be used to influence programs for families, social services, and policy. And I guess the innovation part of that is just trying to do things better and different and having some sort of technology component is important as well. Yeah, that sounds like great work. It is. It's, it's a lot of fun. I still do it. All three of the videos for this record were made under lockdown and it was kind of, you know, um, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. I was planning to work with a video director, like a real person who makes a living out of making videos. And we were putting some ideas together actually for a completely different song. And it never happened because then we were getting close to lockdown and then we just decided, well, we, we can't do this. But I still had to, I was still putting out the record and I still had these singles and I wanted videos because I, you know, you have to have videos. And so 
my husband actually does some video work and we just decided to do them all ourselves. It, and it was a lot of fun. I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought that I could do it. I would have just outsourced everything if we weren't in the situation that we were in. But, you know, it was how we kind of kept our sanity, I think, in the early weeks and months of quarantine, just kind of having fun, um, coming up with ideas. For Alexa, which is the very first one that we did, that song is, there's a very complicated narrative to that song, even though it's quite a simple loop of a song. But it's really about, as you might tell by the title Alexa, it's about this idea that um, artificial intelligence is this new god that's kind of presiding over our world. And so I, I wanted to create this sort of split narrative between a human, which is me in the video, and a robot slash artificial intelligence, which is kind of also in the world and contrast a lot of shots of nature with the robot. And I wanted something really visual and beautiful. And we shot that video. I was the robot as well as myself, wrapped myself in mylar um, just because I thought it would look cool. And we went it up to, cool. <laughs> yeah, um, we went to Marin, which is just north of San Francisco. And um, it's just a part just across the Golden Gate Bridge. They're beautiful parks and kind of wildlife areas. And so we went and shot in a field. It's funny because that was actually the day before lockdown, because I remember driving back after we had done a whole day of shooting, we were all exhausted. My kids helped. My son, actually, I have a 12 year old. He did a lot of the filming and um, my nine year old daughter did a lot of the lights. <laughs> so we put them to work. It was a family affair. And I remember thinking it was getting late and like, oh, we should just stop and get some dinner on the way home. And that was an option because it was the last day before everything shut down. So that was, I'm glad we, we got a little bit of filming done for that. My husband edited the video. And so that was, that was the first one. That was Alexa. And then I wasn't planning on Alone Together being released as a single at all. It wasn't, you know, one of my top choices for that. But I noticed that in the U.S., the, the government's quarantine website was, um, I think it was called coronavirus.gov, had a hashtag and their hashtag was Alone Together, which... I just thought was funny and, and some sort of sign that <laughs> it should be released as a single because it was kind of timely. And, you know, all of these songs were written last year or, or in years prior to that. So obviously everything predated the pandemic and in this weird situation that everyone got thrown into. I think a lot of the mood and a lot of the subject matter of the record was actually I was feeling a lot of the anxiety and the loneliness that a lot of people started to feel under quarantine. So I think that some of the, like thematically it resonated or it resonates with people now, um, but that was completely unintentional. I just kind of, in, in a way I feel like COVID kind of put people in the headspace that I was in years pr prior to, um, to it happening. So for Alone Together, even though that song is about something completely different, it's actually about a friend of mine that 
I, I met up, who I'd, I've kind of grown apart from, met up with. It, that, that song was about her and me. But I reimagined it as a lockdown song and it worked. And so we, we filmed this video in our garage entirely with a green screen and um, tried to tell the story of two people who were in quarantine together, but alone, so alone together. And that was, I wanted it to be kind of fun and playful. And so I hope that came across. And that was a lot of fun doing that, especially the tennis scenes, uh, <laughs> playing tennis on top of the building. But, and the last video, to be perfectly honest, so that um, Subverter of Geography is my favorite song. And it wasn't, it was kind of the last song. And I really wanted to have a special video, but to be perfectly honest, I think I was all directed out <laughs> by then with these complex narratives. It was taking its toll. And so I just, just decided that I really wanted it. I mean, that song is about wanting to be someplace else. I wanted something really beautiful and visual. And so I asked a friend of mine who's a painter if I could use one of her pieces of art. And I wanted to create a, a you know, a scene in which I'm, I'm going into her painting. And so that's what we did. We kind of played around with it. It's lots of special effects, but that was, um, that's, that was the third video. They're all really good. I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that they were made under lockdown because I just, just <laughs> I didn't get that at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it just, um, they've all got like this, like kind of surreal quality to them as well. It kind of remind me of like, um, David Lynch and stuff like that, you know, well done. <laughs> it was fun. And I even started entertaining the idea of going and like doing videos for other bands. <laughs> like, oh, you should, you should. I think, I think you've got a talent for it. Thanks.
Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to Forest Bees. Check out the new album. All the links are in the show notes. And of course, please do check out my website, frankburton.co.uk. Buy my books, A History of Sarcasm, 100 and Everything I Am. Watch the video series, The Ragbag Rambler. You won't regret it. And even if you do, it's free, so who cares? You'll get over it. See you soon. We're cooking on gas here, folks. We really are. Cooking on gas here, cooking on gas here, cooking on gas here, cooking on gas here. We're cooking on gas here, folks. We really are. See you soon. Podcast is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or follow Britpod Scene on Twitter to find out more.